You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's true, we couldn't be more different, Bill and I. Father Bill, Pastor Bill, you can sit, you can sit down. I, uh, and, and what he's just said is, is absolutely right. I mean, I have canceled all of my trips for now and much of the, the work that I, that I had to finish up. But coming here really is refreshing. And I also had that sense in my gut that I needed to do it. And so the time with friends, I'll say more about that in a moment, the time at the monastery, not necessarily the book that was being read to us, but other than that, and, and this, the time yesterday, time today, I, mean, I think it, it has been a gift from God to me. So thank you for hosting that, all of you. I appreciate it very much. So I've been here enough. You know I'm emotional. And that way, maybe Bill and I are alike. It's just I'm on the darker side of the emotional spectrum. But I, I'm especially moved today, and I don't know all of the reasons why, but I have some sense. And so I want to say a little bit about kind of why I'm in the state I'm in, as, as I understand it, and then we'll go to the text, and then I'll get out of the way, and we'll come to the table. Part of it is, as Bill just mentioned, three weeks ago Friday, I had a stroke. I was supposed to go on a retreat with friends to Memphis. And I woke up to prepare for that, to pack and hit the road. And I had what at the time I thought was a mental break, what was a psychotic break. But it turns out it was a stroke. On Sunday, three weeks ago today, I went back to the hospital and I had at least two other mini strokes. Thankfully, the damage is minimal to, to my brain. It did damage the part of my brain that makes memories and processes experience. So it was the most important part of my brain. You know, I could have, I could have had damage to my brain that undercut my motor skills or my look. But, I mean, I need the part of my brain that thinks. And that's the part that was affected. And it's part of the reason that I experienced it the way that I did, as a kind of psychotic or mental break. Because the part of my brain that was dying was the part that makes sense of what is happening to you. And the recovery has been, has been good. I I'm not really able to sleep very well, but I don't have a lot of what are called deficits. I do sometimes switch words. So today, if in the sermon, I'm saying something you don't understand. Assume that that's because of theological depth or spiritual insight. Don't automatically count that as a sign of a stroke. But it may be, and if it is, we'll laugh about it and go on. I haven't preached since then. I haven't preached since then. And this is preaching. It's what I was made to do. When I was five or six years old, I remember climbing up into bed. My mom was going to read me a book for the night. I was wearing my dad's T-shirt. And I'm climbing up in the bed for my mom to read my nighttime story. And I said to my mom, I'm going to be a preacher. 
and I've never doubted it since then. So some of the weight I feel today is about that. I'm, I'm glad to be alive. I'm glad to be alive to do what I'm made to do, able to do what I'm made to do. But it's more than that. It's when, when Father Bill and I were talking, uh, when he picked me up from the airport, I was sketching some of this history. And w- one of the things that's happened in the aftermath of the stroke is the doctors have kind of been able to put together what led to it and kind of unfurl the history of problems that set me up for the stroke. And he asked me the question, when is the last time you were healthy, really healthy? And the answer that came to me was Princeton, where I met Pastor Mark. Which, what, was that 2012 or 13? 2013. was the last time that my body was what it should have been. The first time I came here, I had already, I'd had a, a blood disorder, a bleeding disorder, and you, you may or may not remember this, but I was already very sick. And that sickness is what set up the succession of events that eventually led to the stroke. So there's something about being here with these people that is a reminder of that whole season for me. And then the texts for today are about remembering and forgiving. And I'm at a season in my life where the wounds I have as a son are healing, but the wounds that I'm receiving as a father are still open. And the ways in which that requires remembering and forgetting and being present and and being absent, all of that is brought to bear on me by these texts as you're about to hear. So that's a reason that I'm moved in the way that I am. Some of it is personal. My, my oldest, she's 17, she's about to leave for college. I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment of my youngest. And so my, my life is at a pivotal point. My life is turning. Many of you have lived that turn. And so I feel the weight of the call of these texts. So for all of those reasons, and many more I'm sure I can't name, my heart is broken open this morning. And I'm going to speak from that place. And until I'm done, or until Father Bill shuts me up, or the Lord returns, or... (laughs) I do have to say, though, that it is good to be here with friends, with with Pastor Bill, with Father JP, whom I felt the Lord nudged me to say I needed to be here with him. When, when When I told, when I called Bill to say, I think I need to come, I think I need to come anyway, I said, and I have this sense that I need JP to be there. So thank you for coming, JP. And the Arstads, who are dear, dear, dear friends, especially Lena and Bryn, Brenna, Brian, but also their father. Thank you for the friends you've been to me, all of you. And thank you for being here today.
I have a feeling you're simply here to be the witness to what God is doing in me. And thank you for witnessing it. So, to the texts. Psalm 126. I want to begin by asking you to look with me at this picture that was taken. One year ago on Palm Sunday, I was consecrated as a priest, along in the same order that Father Bill, and Father JP, and Father Mark are. And this picture, which I don't know if you can see that well, I'm serving communion to my youngest son, Emery. You can't quite tell it. If you, if you look at the picture another time, you'll see that his face is literally radiant. I mean, since he was a little, little boy, communion is the only reason he wanted to go to church. <laughs> One of my favorite stories is we, the church we attended in Tennessee, they served a whole loaf. And people would come and tear from the loaf. And Emery, grinning ear to ear as a three- and four-year-old boy, would go up and just take a handful and rip... <laughs> Out. I mean, half of the loaf was ingested right by that one little body. So he's excited. Also, he knows what this moment is for me or has some sense of it. You can't tell in this picture, but he's literally on his tiptoes. But the wonder of this, and you can see I'm, of course, crying. That's a theme. <laughs> but do you see the back of the man who's between us? That's my father. And he's walking away. So I have just served my father, who was crying when I served him. And the next person to step to me was my youngest son. And if you look at it, it is literally a circle. If you begin with my son's body and his face lifted up to mine, there's a circle to me, to my father, who's directly between us. But his back is turned to us. This is what we call the circle of life. This is the rhythm of presence and absence. This is the rhythm of life and death. This is the, reason, the rhythm of spring, summer, fall, and winter. Here is a boy in the spring of his life being served by a man who's in the summer, I hope, of my life. And a man who's in the fall, early winter, I hope, of his. And we all, every human being who's ever lived, lives that rhythm. There have been, think about it, 10,000 generations of human beings in this world. And every one of them has been born into that rhythm. Presence and then absence. Lightness, light and darkness, memory and forgetting. That is the life we are called to live. How do we live it faithfully? And I want you to notice in this picture, I'm serving him communion. Now there's one other image you can see here, barely. In the other robe is Father Paul, who's the rector at the church where I was consecrated. And he's watching this. And this is part of what the church's ministry is. To bear witness to our lives in the fullness of that movement. 
part of the part of the problem with a lot of our churches is that we don't know how to oversee the full cycle we can minister to aspects of the fullness of human being but not the fullness but the goal of ministry is to open the full complexity of human being up to the whole mystery of God and anything less than that will distort what God is doing the whole complexity of human being to the full mystery of God so Let's come to the text, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us indeed, and we rejoice. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. This is the cycle of life. Notice the tenses shift in this psalm. We begin in the past tense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then we were like those who dream. This is a remembering of a past victory, a remembering of what God has done, who God has been, a remembering of what is best in our past. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The nations saw it and marveled, and we rejoiced. Our mouth was filled with singing. And then suddenly, out of that remembering of victory... Out of that testimony of what God has done and who God has been arises a request. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Praise for what God has done brings them into an awareness of the need for God to do it again. Which means that what the restoration of their past is not sufficient for the present they're living. When the Lord restored, but it's not a once-for-all restoration. When the Lord restored, then we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with singing, but now our mouth is filled with begging. Restore again, Lord. Fractured Christianities, unfaithful Christianities, want to talk about the work of God in ways that are always fully accomplished. Ways of victory that don't allow for the full cycle of human experience, where we always move from strength to strength, but never strength to weakness. From glory to glory, but never from glory to brokenness. But the fact is, the life God has called us to live is a life that is embracing the fullness of the cycle of life. And that includes light and dark. That includes sowing and reaping. That includes sorrow and joy. That includes loss and gain. That includes children 
and the aged. That includes birth and death. And we can't lie to ourselves about it. The fracturedness, Father Bill, that you were naming earlier with the ways in which it's easy for us to say, God, connect me to you. God, connect me to my neighbor. But it's hard for us to say, God, connect me to myself. Is because we're denying this basic reality. We were born and we will die. Dust we are and to dust we shall return. When we were at the monastery, Father... Randy took us down to the crypt and showed us where the brothers at the monastery are buried. And standing there showing us these names on the wall where their ashes are kept, he said to us, someday I'll be there too. Thankfully, it wasn't three weeks ago for me. But at some point, you will, some of you, hear the news, either on this side of the veil or on that side of the veil, that I died. That will happen. It is happening to you and to me. And somehow we've asked God to protect us from it, to keep us from noticing it. But you can't See the grace of God at work in your life as it is until you see your life as it is. You can't know what God is doing until you're in touch with the reality of your life as it actually is. Not as you want it to be. Not as you wish it were. Not as you're telling yourself it is. But you've got to be in touch with what's true about your life. And when you get in touch with your truth you will find hidden in that truth the mystery of God's word. And not until. God doesn't work in artificial spaces. God doesn't work in projections. God works in truth-telling. And the most basic truth is we live this cycle. We live this cycle in which those who love us most hurt us worst. And that the ways in which we were harmed, we will harm. The wounds I have as a son, I have now inflicted on my children as a father. And so have you. And so will you. That's what it means to be the creatures we are. And God is in the midst of that turning. And within that without that wheel, as well as within it, turns the mystery of the wisdom and the goodness and the patience of God. But you have to know the rhythm. You have to accept the truth. And so we see the rhythm, the most basic form of it, is sowing and reaping. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed, Think about why are they weeping? I mean, they're bearing seed. It's the, it's, it's the beginning of the planting season. Why are they weeping? We all go to the field weeping. We weep for different reasons. We leap. We weep because of what has been done to us. We weep because of what we've done to others. We weep because of what has not been done for us. We weep because of what we cannot do for others. 
we go weeping. You cannot bear seed without tears in your eyes. You cannot bear seed without a broken heart. The seeds to your future and your children's future are in the brokenness of your heart. You cannot bear seeds if you are not broken. But we go out weeping, bearing seeds. We shall come with shouts of joy, carrying the sheaves. That is the life God has made for us. But notice... This is the first of four texts. Man, we, we have, I've got to accelerate this. Let's go back to the first verse for just a moment. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. Jesus is the one in whom all opposites are reconciled. Jesus is born of a virgin. Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Jesus dies in his living. His entire life is a death, a dying. And he lives in his dying. Jesus reconciles all opposites. He's the all-knowing one as the babe at his mother's breast who knows nothing but the milk that's in his mouth. He is the reconciler of opposites. He's holy, but he's drawn to the unholy. He's sinless, but he's the friend of sinners. And if we had time this morning and there was somebody ready to get on the organ, we could stay right there for a while. But he not only reconciles the opposites, all of the things in creation that are opposed to each other, he also all. He also alters, that wasn't a a symptom of the stroke, I don't think. It was just a normal stumble. He also alters those things that are opposed to God. So hear me, all good things are reconciled in Jesus. All natural things are reconciled in Jesus. Joy and sorrow, hope and fear, all of that is reconciled in him. Because God and man are reconciled in him. But he also alters through his life those things that are opposed to God, sin and death. He makes it, St. Maximus says it like this, he converts the use of death to make what is God's enemy into a door into the life of God. So death is opposed to God. Death cannot be reconciled to God. It will be destroyed by God when we are reconciled. But in the meantime... Jesus has altered the use of death so that dying is for us not a passing into nothing, but a pass into the presence of God and all those who are in God. And God has altered the use of sin. Thomas Aquinas, in his reflection on Paul's thorn in the flesh passage, says that Christ, the great physician, knows how to use our sins, even our mortal sins, for the healing of our humanity. He alters the use even of those things that are opposed to God. And because of that, Christian speech is always speech that's paradoxical, laden with mystery, and that stumbles under the weight of all you have to say. 
And this is why Christians, when they're talking Christianly, never talk in platitudes or cliches or simplicities. Christians do that, but they're not talking Christianly when they do it. Because to speak rightly about anything or to anyone is to speak in the voice of the one who reconciles all opposites and alters, changes, fundamentally alters the use of even those things that are opposed to God. Now, I say all that to say this text is playing on this notion of dreaming. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. In one way, and this is most often the case in the Bible, dreaming is something you need to be awakened from. Today is the day of salvation. Wake up, sleeper. Right? So much of Scripture is a call to wake up, a startling back to reality out of dreams. Right? But there is another way in which dreaming is the only time in your life in which you can actually reconcile yourself to what you've experienced and what you're anticipating. It is only in your dreams that you have the language to start to hold together what you have been, what you hope to be, and what you are. If we are going to be people who are reconcilers, who, like Christ, hold all of this together, who not only live the circle of life, but become people in whom that entire circle is reconciled, we have to know how to dream. But to know how to dream the way God dreams, you have to wake up from all the other dreams. So you need a word from God that startles you out of the dreams the intoxication of normal life as we're used to living it. The kind of dreaming that comes when you're watching way too much commentary on TV about the news, or you're listening to toxic voices, or you're only reading and listening to people who say the things you're already convinced are important. Like that, that kind of dreaming you have to be awakened from. But you need to be awakened into the dream of God. Because it's only in that way that you can start to reconcile who you've been as a son or a daughter with who you are as a mother or a father. With what you've been and what you shall be. So with all of that groundwork, quickly, Philippians 3. Are we okay still? I won't take that long on each text, probably. I'm kidding, I won't. Philippians 3. This is a very familiar passage to us. I'm going to, to read through it fairly quickly, make a couple of comments, and then draw your attention right at the end to something Paul says, shows the ways in which he's doing it. And I, I, what I want you to notice is that this is Paul near the end of his life. He opens this letter in Philippians 1 by telling them, I'm hard-pressed between two realities. Those are his words. I am caught between two realities, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I don't know which I prefer but I know what the Lord is going to require of me. It would be better for me, he says, to depart and to be with God. But that would not be good for you, and so I know I will remain. That's how he opens the letter. So this is Paul writing from prison. 
at the end of his life, in the, in the, in the winter of his life, looking back on who he had been before he encountered Jesus. So he's remembering, and notice what he says here. It's actually a hilarious passage. Chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. So this is boasting. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now what he's doing here is he's essentially saying, out of all of humanity, I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. But out of all Jews, I belong to the right tribe, not just to any tribe, but the tribe of Benjamin. And out of all the Benjamites, I was born into a family of Hebrews who speak Hebrew. And not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, and so better than the other Benjamites, who are better than the other Israelites, who are better than everyone else who's a Gentile, I was also a Pharisee, but not just a Pharisee. I was a zealous Pharisee. So even within the Pharisees, within the Hebrew-speaking Benjamites who are of Israel amongst the nations, I was zealous, but not just zealous. I was perfect. So what Paul just did, and I think it is, it is a kind of silly boasting, is to say, when I look back on who I was before I met Jesus, I was the best person who ever lived. Right? The rest of you struggle to be human. I nailed it. I hit every note. That's what he's saying. I was blameless. He just kept drawing smaller and smaller and smaller circles. At some point, you got circled out. But at the end, Paul was standing. And he says, and when I remember that, I count it as loss. I count it as loss. So he's remembering his life. And he says, all of that I count as loss. Verse 7. Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. I have come to regard them as loss. He's come to remember his past differently. This is what happens when you meet Jesus. Your past changes. Because what you have experienced and what you've made of what you've experienced is open to the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. More than that, more than that, I regard everything as loss. So not just my life, yours too. Everything is loss. Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. This righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, the full circle. Not an Easter faith, but a Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter faith. Not a Christmas faith, but a Christmas and the wilderness temptation faith. You have to have the whole circle. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? So that I may become like him in his death. If somehow, therefore, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, moving into the future. He's remembering his life so he can move into the future. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting. Forgetting, the reconciliation of opposites. The only way to remember rightly toward your future is to forget the things in your past that should be forgotten. You've got to know how to forget. Forget the right way. There's a a bad forgetting. There's a false forgetting. What is made possible by Christ is a forgetting that is not the loss of a memory, but the loosing of it. Not the loss of a memory, but the loosing of it. And all of you who've been hurt, and everyone in this room has been hurt, God does not want you to move on. He does not want you to forget the wrong, brush it off, and keep pushing on. Don't, hear, don't mishear me. He does want you to be able to loose the wrong into his care. Nobody will get by with anything. Nobody who did anything to you won't answer for it. They will face Jesus for every word, every act. You can loose it to him. And holy forgetting is not about losing anything. It's about loosing it into the hands that can hold it all. Including, and this is what the power of Philippians is, including not only the things you did wrong or that were done wrong to you, but the things you did right. And hear me, the hardest thing to loose is what you did right. As hard as it is to get over the damage done to you, it is so much harder to get over your victories. Your accomplishments. But you've got to count it all as something to loose. All right, two more passages. John 12. John 12. Everybody still okay? One more word about dreams, and then we're going to look at Mark 12. I mean, John 12. In February 2020, Ahmad Arbery, the news broke about Ahmad Arbery being murdered. The video, of course, had finally surfaced. He'd been killed before, as you remember. Well, not in February. He was killed in February. A few months later, the news broke. And it, it broke because the video was released. And I'm sure all of you saw it, or at least heard about it. We watched, my wife and I watched that, grieved and prayed, and that night she had a dream. And in her dream, she saw Ahmed's mother, Wanda, sitting in a chair alone in her house. And Julie said that she was aware that this was just a mom who wanted her son. She didn't want justice, she wanted her boy. When she shared that with me the next morning, I heard the Lord say, your hearts will not change until your dreams do. 
Your hearts will not change until your dreams do. That's what's happening in Psalm 126. That's what's happening to Paul in Philippians. The dreams he had as the church-persecuting Pharisee and the dreams he had as an old man in prison could not have been more different. So, John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the house of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You always have the poor, but you do not always have me. You do not always have me. Leave her alone. One of the things that's astounding about the story of the raising of Lazarus in the previous chapter is that there is no rejoicing when he comes from the tomb. He's raised from the dead and no one sings. No one shouts. Immediately a shadow falls over the event and everyone realizes this is what's going to get Jesus killed. And Jesus steals away into the wilderness to a small city far away from the city of Jerusalem. And in six days before the Passover, he comes back. And I want you to see, Jesus comes back to this family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. This is obvious once you notice it, but it's a strange family because you have two single women and a man who never speaks who's listed last. This never happens in the ancient world. It's not Lazarus' house. He's the man, but it's not his house. It's Martha's house. But she's not the wife of, she's just Martha. And her also single sister, Mary, is living with them. Again, in the ancient world, this doesn't happen. This shouldn't happen. Women are married away because their fathers need the money. And men lead the house, and men do the talking. Lazarus never says a word in the text at any point. He's always listed last. Jesus is drawn to broken families. Now, of course, there are only broken families. Just not all families know they're broken. But Jesus is drawn to broken families. When he's about to enter into his passion, he is on this day where we are in the church's calendar. We're about to enter the same week he's about to live. And when he's about to face all that, he wants to be with his friends like I want to be with mine. And my friends are every bit as weird as his were. I want you to think about what this means. It's because Jesus grew up as a boy in a broken family. A family people were suspicious of. 
He's at home with strange people. All people are strange. Most people don't know they're strange. So he comes to Mary Martha's, Lazarus's house. Lazarus is at the table. Martha is serving. She's doing what she does. And Mary breaks this perfume. It fills the house. And there's this grieving, grieving, grieving line. The perfume, the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. And Judas asked, Why? How is it in that moment, with the room saturated with the sweetness and the bittersweetness of this act of love, how is it that he's asking why? Thomas Aquinas in his sermons on this passage says, this is the moment in which Judas dies. The sweetness of the fragrance kills him, he says, because Christ is a fragrance of death to those who are faithless. So when she breaks the perfume, what comes up out of Judas is why. And I need you to hear me. You need to know enough about yourself to know that when there is an act of worship and what comes up out of you is a why question, that's Judas talking in you. Don't ask why. Don't calculate. Our God does not calculate. God does not keep books. God does not tally. And when we ask questions about what sense does this make? Why is this happening? We're calculating. We're dealing in terms of cause and effect. God does not deal in cause and effect. He deals in creation and resurrection. God does not need causes to bring about ends. God does not need means to bring about ends. God is the one who calls those things that are not into being. God is the one who raises the dead. Stop asking why questions. When our culture falls apart, don't you dare ask why. When your family is falling apart, don't ask why. When good is happening to someone you don't think should receive it, don't ask why. The question is not why, but who. What is he up to? And Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. John Chrysostom in his sermon on this passage says, if Mary had asked Jesus, he would have said, let's give this nard to the poor. But she didn't ask. And Jesus will never let, Chrysostom says, Jesus will never let the faithless criticize the faithful. Leave her alone. Shut your mouth, Judas. You always have the poor. You do not always have me. Now, what sense does that make? Jesus is God. Jesus is always present. He's always here. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. What sense does it make to say, you do not always have me? Because here's the thing. There is a way in which Jesus' presence to you is experienced as an absence. Remember that image. My father is turning away from me. 
and there is in your life with God. God never changes. There is no shadow of turning with him. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is eternal. God is always fully present doing all that God does. And yet, what you need from God is for God to be God as he is, not as you've known him. At the end of the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene is in, in the, near the tomb, in the garden. She sees the gardener, doesn't recognize him. He calls her name. She sees who he is. And what does she do immediately? She clings to him because she's in the garden looking for the Jesus she has known. She's in love with who Jesus has been to her. And what does he say? Don't cling to me. I must ascend to my God and your God. I must be who I am, not who you've known me to be. God is not what you've experienced him to be. God is God. And the only way to be open to the future is not to cling to the past. You've got to loose what you've known of God. Not only what you've suffered and not only what you've accomplished. You must loose what you think you know about God or you will become a stumbling block. You will interfere with what God is doing if you operate from a sense of knowing what God is and what God is like. You must loose it. Not lose what you've known of God, but loose it. Hold it open-handedly. Leave her alone. You do not always have me. One of the things that I think is striking about this is that Mary knows, but she has no words for it. She doesn't speak. She just anoints. She just anoints. And I want you to see, and we're going to go to Isaiah, and I'm going to shut up, I promise. I want you to see the connection between pouring out your heart wordlessly and the poor you have with you always. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, at the last judgment, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was sick and you visited me. Notice, not healed me, you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. You sat with me. And what do they say? Both the righteous and the unrighteous. When did we see you? When did we see you? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's another absurd moment where Jesus is telling them, assuring them, right? Some of them are doubting while he's present talking to them. And he says to them, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go and remember this. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And he disappears. Think about that. I mean, here we are. We're all gathered around him, still reeling from what we just saw happen on the cross. And now here he is again, the marks of slaughter still in his body. And he tells us, now I'm with you always, and then disappears from our sight. He's not there. Wait a minute. I thought you said you would be with us always. How do you immediately perform a disappearing act? Because the way in which he is with you is not the way he has been with you. Our God is a God on the move. He is, as Martin Luther says, he goes away to be closer to us. He goes into your future to create a present that is closer to his heart than your past is. But if you are attracted to, 
clinging to what you've known of God, your future will be a recycling of your past. Your future will be nothing but the projection of your wishes from the past. And what God wants for you is better, no matter how good your past is. And God, I hope it's good. No matter how good it is, God's future for you is better. But you've got to loose that to receive this. So, final passage, Isaiah 43. We're finally to the sermon. I don't know if I can still do it on this side of the stroke, but if I can, I'm about to preach now. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Let's start in verse 6. The numbers in this Bible are terribly small. Hold on. Maybe I can't do it. See, this is what happens when you, when you say you're about to do something. There you go. Absolutely. Not, not, let's not start in verse 6, actually. Let's jump to... Sixteen. Thank you, Father Bill. Isaiah forty three, sixteen. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What are we remembering here? What did he just recall? The God who makes a way in the sea, the God who brings down the chariot and the horse, this is the Exodus. Pharaoh and his rider have been cast into the sea. So God says, this, this is who I am. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea? Remember not the former things. God, you just brought up the former things. No, he didn't. Listen to it again. Thus says the Lord, who? See, he's reminding you of who he is, not what he did. Now, who he is is inseparable from what he did. But what you need to know is it's who he is, not what he did, that matters. Remember me, not the former things. Remember me, not what I did. Remember not the former things. I'm preaching better than you're shouting. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, including that exodus that made you who you are. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Are you dreaming? Because that's the only way you can see it. If you're awake, you won't see it. You've got to be dreaming as Mary is dreaming in the aftermath of what she's seen with her brother. Dreaming enough to bring this nard and pour it on his feet without words. Remember not the former things. I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. Again, God is not a cause and effect God. He's a cross and resurrection God. I will make a way in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert. I give drink to my chosen people. I give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself. 
that they might declare my praise. I give drink to the people I formed. Go back one chapter, 42. We're in it now. We're in it now. 42.9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. You see, we, we sing a new song because God is always doing what's new. The praise from the end of the earth, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its city lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. Now this should remind you of Philippians 3. What did Paul say? Concerning persecution, I was zealous. The Lord comes like a mighty man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Do you know what just happened? You've known me, Israel, as a mighty warrior. You've fallen in love with me as the God of shield and spear. The God who tramples down your enemies. The God who washes his feet in their blood. That's not who I am. I am a mother giving birth. And the cries that you thought were battle cries were birthing cries. And what's happening in me, God says, is that there's a new man being born. A new child breaking into the world. A child who will not wash his feet in the blood of his enemies, but will wash and cleanse the feet of his enemies. That's who I am. And if you're in love with what you thought you knew about me as warrior, you will never embrace me as who I am as mother. If you want the battle cry, you will hate the birth cry. So you've got to forget what you think you know about me. You've got to loose all of that for the new thing to come. And there is a new thing coming. In that image, give me five minutes and I swear it'll be at least two more years you won't have to hear me. Thank you. I love that. It's perfect. Not 11. Gosh, I want you to hear me though. All, all jokes aside, I want you to hear, I want you to hear what, I, what I feel burdened to say, what I feel birthing in me. In that image of Emory and my father, what's holding us together is a circle. It's a host. It's the Eucharist. You remember when Jesus is at table with Judas, 
And he breaks the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup, my blood shed for many. Remember what he says? Do this for my remembrance. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which that's true. Do this to remember me, yes? But in Scripture, when God remembers, it is a way of saying God acts. When Joseph is delivered from prison, he says, I was remembered. When Daniel is delivered from the lion's den, he says, I was remembered. When we say that we do this so that Jesus is remembered, we're not simply remembering, having in mind that Jesus once died. God is acting on us. We are being membered again by the Jesus who's present at this table, as Father JP, if I'll ever shut up, will lead us to. But there's a third sense. Do this so you can learn to remember like I do. Do this for my remembrance. Yes, you're broken. But you're broken not by someone but for someone. See, you remember it that you were broken by someone. That's not how he remembers it. You remember that you were crushed by someone. That's not how he remembers it. And if you could catch a glimpse of how he remembers your past. One of my dearest friends, John Stone, was the youngest child in his family had older brothers, and he had always remembered his past with them. It was pretty difficult. He had a lot of pains related to being the youngest child. And as a grown man with kids of his own, he was in prayer about that. And he heard God say, I don't remember your past the way you do. I don't remember your past the way you do. And he took John back to a picture that John had kind of kept in his mind. And John had remembered it as a time in which he had been mocked. And he said, suddenly, looking at that picture in my parents' house, I realized they weren't mocking me. They were celebrating me. I was the center of attention, not because they were mocking me, but because they delighted in me. God doesn't remember your past the way you do doesn't remember this church's past the way we do as a congregation, doesn't remember your personal past or our nation's past. He doesn't remember the way we do. And so, stand with me. God, you've been, you've been so patient. Thank you. This morning I woke up. Looked at my phone and realized today is April 3rd. Does anybody know what happened on April 3rd, 1968? April 3rd, 1968, it was a Wednesday night, C.H. Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. 39-year-old man stood up and talked to the sanitation workers. He preached shorter that night than I'm preaching today. (laughs) You shouldn't preach longer than Martin Luther King. That's a bad move. I immediately went to YouTube. 
I found the full, I've heard it many times, but I played it again. You know how he starts that sermon? You should listen to it today. He starts off by saying, if God the Almighty came to me and said, Martin, you can live at any time in human history that you want to live. I'll let you have it. He said in his inimitable way, I'd go back to seeing that tribe following Moses out of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea into their promised land, but I wouldn't stop there. And then he just moves through history. And again, I'm not going to imitate him. He moves through history. And then he says, this is the beginning of the sermon. He says, if God would just give me a few years in this century, I would be happy. That's how he begins. And then you know how it ends. Here's how the sermon ends. The last 30 seconds. He is talking at length about the fact that when he flew that morning from Atlanta, the plane was late because they had to do double inspections to make sure no one was going to blow up the plane. And in the middle of that, he recounts how 10 years before that in New York, he had been stabbed by a woman and nearly killed. And how for the last 10 years of his life, he had lived under constant threat that someone would kill him. He says, and who knows what will happen next? I am happy. I just want to do God's will. Those are his exact words. I just want to do God's will. I've been to the mountain and I have seen the promised land. And I am not worried about anything. And I am not fearing any man. One of the things that struck me this morning, I've never heard it in all the times I've heard and read that sermon. I've never noticed he doesn't say I'm not afraid of any man. He says I'm not fearing any man. For mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Move on the bill. I love you, Salem. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.